So 2 Kings 6, 1-7. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Let me just pray for us. Precious Jesus, thank you for the freedom we have to meet together and to meet you in your word. Lord, we are fundamentally your creatures. You are our creator. Um, And by your mercy, that those who take refuge in you can call you their father. And God, I pray that we would meet you in scripture this morning. I pray that you would soften our hearts, um, that you would call us to you. And Lord, uh, help JR as he brings the word to us. May he speak faithfully and truly to your word. Please guard him. Amen. Thank you, Lauren. Well, if you've uh, had any interaction with uh, church traditions that use prayer books, you might be familiar with uh, this common liturgical greeting. It goes like this, the Lord be with you. you. There's at least a few of us who are familiar with those traditions. The Lord be with you and also with you. Ruth uh, 2.4 and Matthew 28.20 are verses that are commonly cited to uh, um, back up in support of use of this greeting, if you like. And now, there's of course nothing wrong with this greeting. It's, it's good, it's biblical. But if you start to recite it whenever you come to church and you don't think about it, and that it, uh, it's something that we just say, it can quickly become one of those ritualistic things uh, that has no meaning, right? And so my question to you this morning is, what do we mean? Uh, obviously, we don't say that at our church every week. But what do we mean when we do say that the Lord is with you? Well, this passage uh, answers that question for us in a couple of ways, and they are my two points this morning. The first is, the Lord dwells among you, and the second is, the Lord redeems you. 
Now, the first point will be the longest, and it also has a lot of content on the front end. So, let me encourage you to strap yourself in, and let's dive right into the first point. The Lord dwells among you. The Lord dwells among you. Let's read the first couple of verses of chapter 6. Now, the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Uh, To begin with, uh, there are a few things that I want to point out to you first in this section and in this story. You see, this story is the last of a series of stories in the book of Kings uh, that show Elisha performing miracles, most of which are for a small group of people or an individual. Uh, That's been the focus of many of the stories of these miracles that he does. Obviously, he does more miracles later on, but from here on in, we get geopolitical Elisha. That is, he is the prophet who finds himself in the middle of battles between nations and being the target of kings who want to take his life. And you might remember from uh, the last few weeks as we've preached through this, the sons of the prophets, uh, they are disciples who originally had Elijah as their head prophet, as their main leader, teacher, instructor, but they are now under Elisha's authority. And there were a few of these schools of prophets uh, in, or sons of the prophets in different cities like uh, Gilgal and Bethel and Jericho. Uh, you might remember this map that we looked at. And we don't know uh, which one of these that this story is particularly referring to, whether it's in one of those three cities. It's probably Jericho because it's close to the Jordan River, Um, but the text doesn't give us the detail. But one of the great things about this passage is that it shows us that Elisha's schools of prophetic ministry, they are growing under his leadership and under his influence considering that, you know, when we first met Elijah back in 1 Kings 17, the the nation of Israel was in a a really bad shape. You might remember they had the worst of the worst of the kings in Ahab, uh, and and, and uh, he was leading Israel in following idols and forgetting the worship of the Lord. And so given that that is where Elijah's ministry began, to find that here is where we are now at with Elisha, these are some really encouraging signs of growth. Now, this would be similar to seeing uh, the, the church really flourish and grow in places like France and Japan, where there is, there is widespread uh, loss of Christianity. And so, brothers and sisters, as we consider that and contemplate this seed right from the beginning, let, let this be an encouragement to us. May we never lose hope, even when the odds seem stacked against us. Because just as these disciples did we may also continue to trust in the Lord and to keep going about His work. Don't ever feel like it is impossible that God could bring life from a dry, arid desert. And so here we are. Faithfulness to the Lord is increasing in Israel. The numbers are increasing. Elisha's ministry is producing fruit. They are growing so much that they need to build a bigger place. And so that's another thing that this passage gives us insight into. The disciples of Elisha, they obviously lived together. 
How that worked, we don't know. In chapter 4, we know that some of the sons of the prophets married and had kids, uh, so perhaps they built other accommodation or, and had common meeting spaces or something like that. Whatever the case, however it is that they organized this uh, school, the setup was such that it was described as a place where they dwelt together, where they lived together. And when we see that language, when we see that in our text, especially in its repetition in these two verses... That ought to make us consider whether there might be some significance in that. As uh, Braden mentioned uh, during question time last week, key and repeated words sometimes in Scripture mean something in the context of the book, in the context of the Testament, and in the context of the whole Bible. And that the text itself is alerting alerting us as readers to that. And other times, well, they're just red herrings. And so this kind of inquiry, this kind of study, where we try to see how each thread fits into the whole patchwork of Scripture, is often called the discipline of biblical theology. Now, as I've mentioned before, our church is called uh, Emmaus Road, because we believe that when Jesus, in Luke 24, says to two of His disciples on that road that Scripture is written in such a way, thus it is written to tell the story of Christ, and that that story climaxes in the gospel, well, then we believe that that's true of all of Scripture, including the Old Testament. And the New Testament authors, they model this approach to us. A good example of that is in 1 Corinthians 10, which we preached on several months ago. I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon if you're interested in uh, knowing more about this. And so, this is uh, what we seek to do when we interpret all of Scripture. How does this thread fit into and, and culminate in and climax in the Gospel? Now, of course, we don't want to ignore the original context. We don't want to do that in this passage, as we don't want to do that in any passage. Uh, and so, this story undoubtedly has significance and meaning in its original Jewish setting, Right? Now, we also want to avoid reading Scripture allegorically, uh, which is where we, we think there must be some kind of you know, hidden meaning underneath the text, uh, which is not apparent on the surface, but you've got to you know, really try and dig to figure out what it is that you know, perhaps nobody has ever, ever seen before. Uh, there are examples, actually, of that of this in this very passage. So some interpreters in the past have seen that the uh, iron axe head that is floating uh, is us, and they have seen uh, that's, that it's us drowning on the riverbed. They have seen the stick that Elisha throws in uh, as the cross, and then they have then said, well, uh, the, the one who throws in the stick and causes it is, is the Savior himself, so it's Jesus, and so Elisha is Jesus, and then because it was in the water, then they must be the waters of baptism, representing how we come up off the, you know, dead from the riverbed floor, and, and now we have risen and we're made alive. I, I mean, that's, that's been such a common interpretation that, you know, people talk about it. <laughs> they talk about that that is uh, how this ought to be read. Now, if if allegory is intended by the author, then of course that is legitimate. Psalm 80, Genesis 4, uh, so Genesis, Galatians 4 are examples of that. But we have to ask ourselves the question of whether such themes and ideas are really there in the text. 
whether what we're looking for, whether what we find is actually there. And uh, the interpretation I just gave you is, uh, I think, whilst it might carry some helpful elements in there, which is probably why so many uh, interpreters have seen this in the past, uh, what, what the issue with that is, is that what it does is it imposes onto the passage these allegorical interpretations that don't seem to have any basis themselves in the text itself. And so in understanding the Bible, we want to be like the Bereans in Acts 17.11. And they, keep, they kept examining the Scriptures and they returned uh, uh, to, to continue to see whether the things that Paul was saying uh, were, were in line with the Word. So, what I hope to communicate to you this morning is that in addition to the meaning of this text in its original context, the very real hopes of Elisha and the sons of the prophets in this passage, that they also point forward to and find their end point in Jesus. And so let me begin with these very words, the place to dwell. Now, I'm going to trace this theme for you briefly, and it will come with uh, several Bible references. So if you're taking notes, which is always a good idea, um, you might want to write them, listen out for them, write them quickly, uh, or just listen and then grab a copy of the slides later. Now, you see, for, for an Israelite at this time, uh, especially one reading Kings, after the nation has been defeated and after it is in exile, those words would have rung in their ears, a place to dwell the ideas are repeated over and over throughout the Old Testament. So let me just give you a small sample. It began in Genesis 12:1 when God promised to Abraham that he would make him a great nation and give him land. After Israel was trapped in slavery, God's promise to them in Exodus 3:8 was that he would free them from slavery and give them the land of the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the otherites. And he then goes on later in uh, Exodus 29, 45, that he will dwell among his people and be their God. God dwelling among them is first given in the tabernacle, uh, the, the tent that God instructs Moses and the Israelites to build as they wander through the wilderness. The last six chapters of Exodus are devoted to this, this tent. And then after they enter the promised land, they become a kingdom in the temple that, uh, that King Solomon builds is where God's presence is made known to the people of Israel and to the surrounding nations. And keep those two images in mind, the tabernacle and the tent. In Deuteronomy 12.5, God again gives the Israelites this instruction, emphasizing that He will put His name and make His habitation in the place that He will give them. And around a thousand years later, long after Israel inherits the land and develops into a kingdom and then goes into exile and comes back, Nehemiah prays on behalf of the nation in Nehemiah 1.9, remembering this very promise from Deuteronomy 12, a promise of a place where God dwells among them. And so what we see in Israel's history 
is that God's promises that He would dwell among His people and that His presence would in some way be connected to the land that He gives them. That is a uh, consistent theme throughout the Old Testament. And so you might say to me, sure, look, I get that uh, this is a theme in Scripture, Uh, I get that, you know, God uses the words place and dwell and He talks about that to His people. But aren't these sons of the prophets just simply saying, hey, our house is too small, we need a bigger one. It's time to upgrade. Well, certainly, at minimum, that is what they're saying. And in the immediate context, there is, there is a partial fulfillment of God's promise actually occurring right here. God's dwelling among His people through Elisha the prophet and through His presence in the land that He's given them. There's, there is a partial fulfillment of that happening. But let me invite you to come and do some more wondering, some more exploring with me through the Old Testament as I explain why I think this passage, it longs for that final fulfillment of these promises, which is only found in Jesus. Firstly, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David and promises in verse 12, someone in his offspring who will establish his kingdom. And earlier on in verse 10, the Lord promises a place to dwell for his people. And so this this, verse, extremely important covenant in 2 Samuel 7 echoes God's earlier covenants with Moses and Abraham, which we've just talked about and I mentioned earlier. And so a faithful Israelite was always anticipating when, when are these things going to be fulfilled? And so now as God promises to David that they they will be fulfilled in a person specifically, they watched and they waited for who this promised son of David would be. And so in reading about Elijah and Elisha with with Jewish hopes and with anticipation, we read and we wonder, as they would have when living, living this whole thing in real time, maybe, maybe these twin hopes of the promised one and God dwelling among His people in the place that He gives them, maybe he, they might be fulfilled in one of them. Could it be Elijah? Could it be Elisha? Could this be the time? Could this be the place where God will finally fulfill all of those covenants? Well, there have already been hints at this along the way. We saw it when Josh preached on Elijah's encounter with God in 1 Kings 19. You know, there were so many, there are so many obvious parallels between Elijah and Moses in that chapter that uh, if you've got a Bible that has cross-references, most of those are actually pointed out. They'll refer you back to Exodus and Deuteronomy and other places where the, the, um, the lining up between Elijah's experience on Mount Sinai and, uh, and Moses's are just very, very similar. In that chapter, Elijah has a very Moses-type experience. And so that makes us think, maybe Elijah is the one. Maybe he's in the line of the, the other great men of God, and maybe he's the one who will lead Israel back to him. Maybe he's the promised prophet of Deuteronomy 18, 15. We see more hints of it again in the departure of Elijah and him then passing 
on the mantle to Elisha, as we saw in 2 Kings 2. And as I said when preaching on that passage, these two men of God, they take a very similar journey to Israel and even part the waters of the Jordan River, which uh, symbolically uh, around the same location as where Moses died. And then where he handed over the reins to Joshua. Well, in all of that, Elijah does the same for Elisha. So, all of these hints, they they build hope, they build anticipation that, well, maybe Elisha might be the one who will fulfill God's promises. Promises for a place where he will dwell with them. You see, these promises, these hopes, and these covenants, they shape the Old Testament. And the whole thing continues to look forward to when they might be fulfilled. And so that brings us back to our passage. When we see here that Elisha's disciples are experiencing growth, that that there are signs of genuine spirituality, once again, budding and flourishing in Israel, after many, many, many years of unfaithfulness in the land, we begin to wonder Are Elisha and his band of faithful disciples the ones who will restore the land and the nation to the right worship of the true God? Perhaps this is the beginning of the promised era of Israel dwelling in the land with the Lord dwelling among them. I think it would be not difficult to imagine that this is what was going on in the minds of the sons of the prophets. And you know, that theme continues in the next verses. After Elisha gives them the go-ahead to go down to the Jordan River and start building a dwelling place, one of them begins this conversation in verse 3. Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. Elisha goes. His presence with them is a reminder of God's presence. Brothers and sisters, remember that when we go to carry out the Lord's work, wherever He sends us, His presence goes with us. Now that's just a brief overview I'm sure you have questions. Please feel free to write them down and ask them later. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, what does all of this mean for us today? Why why am I drawing all of this out? Well, I do it because I think that embedded in this seemingly short, straightforward story about a miracle Elisha performs is another seed of messianic hope. And that seed only grows to become a full tree at the coming of Jesus. In John 1.14, John uses these theologically loaded words when he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt there literally means to pitch a tent, 
And the language there, including that of glory, calls to mind the tabernacle of God's presence, the tent of God's presence. You can check out Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 35, for a very close parallel to what John is saying here. God came down to dwell among His people, and that great hope has finally been fulfilled in Christ. But there's still more to this. Uh, You may have noticed in the title of this point that I put a little circle after the word you, like a degrees symbol. Was anyone like, what is that? (laughs) A few. Well, that's because in college, when I was studying Greek, uh, we had to indicate in some way in our translations whether the you that we were writing was plural or singular. And so I chose to do it that way, by putting a little circle afterwards to indicate that the you is plural. And the reason I point that out is because this first point is highlighting a promise that is given in the Old Testament and is finally fulfilled in the New. If you read the rest of Kings and Chronicles and the Prophets, you'll see that Israel doesn't become that nation that God promises that they will be. Instead of turning back to the Lord, instead of living as His people in His land, they continue to decline in unfaithfulness and eventually are conquered by Babylon and Assyria. And then when they're finally allowed to return to Israel, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild their nation, things are just not the same. Ezra 3.12 shows how many of the older heads in Israel who remembered the glory of the former temple when they saw the new one being made, they wept because they just knew that this is not what they had hoped for. And of course, Israel, the nation, it never rebuilds itself up again to the point of being a kingdom. By Jesus' day, there are people scattered all across Asia Minor and the Roman Empire. And by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Israelites, who are now also known as the Jews, look nothing like what God promised to Abraham and Moses and David. Yet, there was still a faithful remnant looking. We read about Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and Anna in Luke 2, who recognized that Jesus was the promised Messiah who would bring redemption to Israel and bring salvation to the rest of the world. And they were right. Jesus was the anointed one that all Jews longed for, for centuries. He was the promised king of the Davidic covenant. That's why Simeon can say when he sees Jesus as an infant, he says, Lord, you may now let your servant depart in peace. I have seen your salvation. And in Jesus, God would fulfill his promise of dwelling among his people. And his people would no longer be found in a physical kingdom here on earth, And nor would they be made up of only people who could trace their genealogy all the way back to a certain ethnic people group. But they would be found in those who have turned from their sin and trusted in 
Christ. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, it is in Christ that God brings together His people. They are now His holy temple in the Lord. In Him, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. This was the plan all along. Right from the very Old Testament, this has been what God has been intending to do, what He has been working towards. It's not like God made promises in the Old Testament to Israel and then kind of went, oh, oh that didn't really work out. Let me just pull the emergency lever. Quick, deploy Jesus. No. Yes, there were, there were space and time covenant promises that God kept with the nation of Israel, like the land that He gave to them. But as we've seen, those promises, they foreshadowed an even greater promise fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus would be the promised King who would rule His people and who would bring God's presence down to them. God now dwells among those people from all nations and in every place who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ. And not only that, wherever you find the local church, you find a localized expression of the very thing that the Old Testament was anticipating. God's people under, in God's place, under God's rule. As Graham Goldsworthy puts it, God's people in God's place, under God's rule. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that the church is now those people that we are the temple of God. That among us is where His promise is fulfilled that He will have a dwelling place for His people. There is no longer a need for a, a physical place or a, or a certain land because God's people are now not bound by ethnicity or geography, or found in one of Earth's nations. God's people are the ones who have recognized that Jesus is the true King. 
And his reign is seen in the local church. Our passage in 2 Kings 6 ultimately points to and longs for the very thing that we get to enjoy on this side of Jesus' coming and on this side of his death on the cross. Do you realize that this is what the church is? The Lord dwells among you. And sadly, we've, we've grown so accustomed to thinking individualistically that we now most commonly think of the church, you know, the same way that other people think about other groups that they're a part of. We think of the church as a collective of individuals who participate in something together and primarily receive individual benefit from it. And while there is truth to that, absolutely, to see only that is to miss the fact that it is together, that it is as God's church, that we represent God here on earth as His temple. It is as His church that God finds His dwelling place among us. So let me ask you this morning, how can we, as a church, shape our lives in such a way that reflects this reality? We need to keep thinking about this because it's just so easy to keep reverting back to our own instincts about what it means to be God's people. In our hyper-individualistic society, it is all too easy to forget that it is we, as the local church, that it is as the local church that we are actually a people, not just many people. We are a people. There is a difference between many circles clumping together to form a circle and just one big circle. Now, both of those images express truth about the church. Obviously, we, don't, we haven't somehow, like clay bits, become one big, giant, mega-transformer. They expose truth about what is going on, but the one that our passage speaks to and the one that I think is most often neglected in Christian life today is the latter. And let me ask it another way. There, there are many ways that we are called to follow Christ as individuals. Well, what are some ways that we're called to live together as His church among whom He dwells? Let me give you a couple of my own thoughts, which are all interconnected, though I'm sure there are many more. Firstly, do you, do you weigh up important life decisions with counsel from your church. I'm not talking about the church telling you what to do, but how do you weigh their thoughts and counsel in such matters? An obvious example of this is where we choose to live. Our church is, is still in an ongoing discussion about how to approach this, but the bedrock principle remains if we put gospel priorities over our personal preferences, which is not to say that such preferences aren't important, but if we, if we place them in, their, in, in a gospel uh, first uh, set of priorities, 
then surely that's more likely to lead to us wanting to live closer to one another so that we can build the kind of community that we see in Scripture and to be an effective witness to our neighbors. Well, Mark and Roz uh, had a taste of this for 10 years when they were part of a church in the Blue Mountains in Sydney. I found it to be greatly fruitful. And likewise, Robert and I experienced some of it in uh, Capitol Hill in the U.S., Another live example of this is that uh, of taking these things into consideration is that Robin and I are currently seriously considering and praying about fostering or adopting. And now that, of course, has many factors that are unique to us that we need to consider ourselves. But because we know that it will have a significant impact on all of you, especially on Sundays... But more importantly, because we want you all to be part of that journey. We want you to actually be in the lives of our family and of whoever God might bring into our family. Then we want to discuss all of that with you. We want to hear seriously your counsel about it. There may be things that we haven't thought about that could be something that will cause us to say, you know what, actually, that's not something we ought to do at this time. You see, in these little ways, we become a witness to the world. By living out our Christian identity in the context that God intended as His people, among whom He dwells, we become a blessing and a witness to the world. And that in turn impacts our evangelism. Sharing the gospel becomes a communal and an individual effort. We bring people along and seek to intersect our social circles so that they can see a people who are marked by the Spirit and the grace of God, people that we have sought to share the gospel with ourselves. You see, what we seek to uh, live out is a people who have reordered their lives to be able to live as those among whom God dwells. And you know, I know things like this happen in our church already. And so please uh, allow me to uh, just simply encourage us to keep going. (laughs) My hope is that as a church, we'll continue to see these biblical truths more and continue to prayerfully pursue how they can be lived out more and more in our daily lives together. And whenever we gather as his people, I pray that we will keep growing and working this out to be the people, the place where God dwells, a place where God dwells here in Darwin in 2021. And as a reminder of that, I'd actually like us to say our church covenant together. But the purpose of this covenant is to actually remind ourselves of who we are and of what we've committed to each other. And what you'll find in these commitments are some very ways that we have sought to biblically consider what it looks like to be God's people 
in God's place under God's rule. And so, if you're visiting here this morning or considering becoming a member at Emmaus Road, let me encourage you to read and to listen to this as we say it and to think prayerfully about what it might mean for you. Maybe your understanding of what a church is is different to what I've just described. I encourage you to chat with me or with one of our elders about that afterwards. And for our members, as we recite this together, ask that the Lord might help you to think about ways that you might be able to pursue this more and more with others in our church. Ask for His Spirit to be at work in your heart to consider how this perhaps can be lived out even today in your own life and ongoingly throughout the rest of our lives. Let's recite it together. We trust that we have been brought by God's grace to repent and to give ourselves up to Him, having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do now, in dependence upon His Spirit, solemnly and joyfully make this covenant with each other. By God's grace, we will submit to the authority of the Scriptures as the final word on all matters of life and doctrine. We will seek to please God by resisting sin and pursuing holiness. We will regularly assemble together to worship God and mutually build each other up in Christ. We will work and pray for the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace with one another. We will use our words to build one another up and glorify God rather than speaking lies, deceit, slander, or gossip. We will show Christian love, affectionate care, and genuine forgiveness toward each other. We will encourage, admonish, and exhibit watchfulness over one another with wisdom and humility in the power of the Holy Spirit. We will raise our children and youth in the training and instruction of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, helping to carry each other's burdens. There's more to that, but I don't have any more. We will defend and maintain a Christ-exalting ministry in this church by supporting and upholding the preaching of the Bible, the right administration of believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper, and when necessary, the exercise of church discipline. We will cheerfully and regularly contribute to the support of the ministry, the needs of the church, and relief of the poor. We will proclaim the gospel in our homes, neighborhoods, and to the ends of the earth in whatever way the Lord enables us. We will, when moving from this place, unite with another church where we will carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Amen. I pray, as I hope you do too, 
that we would continue to live that out as God's people in this place. But perhaps you're here today and you're wondering, well, if I can't become part of this by being an ethnic Jew, well then how do I become a part of it? That brings us to point two. The Lord makes restitution for you. Sorry, Jess, can you control? There it is. It's all good. Can you just go back to that title? Thanks. So how does someone become a part of God's people today? Well, the second half of our passage, again, foreshadows the way that Christ would do that. Let's read from our passage from verse 5. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Now, if you want to buy an axe today, you could head down to Bunnings and pick one up for $20. A teenager could work a few hours at Domino's and be able to afford one. <laughs> You're laughing because it would probably take a few more hours, right? But in Elisha's day, during the Iron Age, an axe was a tool uh, that definitely wasn't as cheap as that. Uh, it could cost about two months' wages. And so this, this explains the disciples' reaction. He says, alas, my master. And that word translated, alas, is a cry of despair. You know, perhaps the modern equivalent of that would be, no! And then he gives the explanation for why such a big response. My master, it was borrowed. You see, what just happened in this instance wasn't a minor inconvenience. This was a big debt that this disciple now owed to the axe's original owner. And Exodus 22:14 makes it clear that in Israel, if someone borrowed anything from his neighbor and it is injured or dies, or in this case is lost at the bottom of a riverbed of the Jordan River, then he will have to make full restitution. And that word restitution there means full payment. And the Hebrew root of that word is actually the same one that we've seen several times over the last few weeks. Can anybody have a guess at what the root of that word might be? Shalom. Underlying the idea of repaying a debt is the understanding that doing so brings a person into a state of peace and wholeness. The disciple was going to have to make full restitution to the owner of the axe. And if he couldn't, that could potentially mean paying with his life as a servant, as we saw in 2 Kings 4. 
So this was a significant debt, which is why it struck such a big blow to him. But, thanks be to God for the man of God. In another act that throws back to one of Moses' miracles in Exodus 15.25, Elisha throws a stick into the water and performs a miracle that once again defies the laws of physics. Iron doesn't float. They knew that. But the God who made the universe can make creation do whatever He pleases. He sustains it by His Word. And He can do unexpected, supernatural things in it by His Word. And yet the point of this story isn't for us to look at it as an allegory or just uh, another record of one of Elisha's miracles to encourage us to try and defy physics. It is ultimately here to point us to Christ and to the gospel. And so when we see that here is a man of God in the line of Moses, a prophetic lineage that Jesus himself would pick up on in his ministry over and over again, making restitution for another man whose debts need to be paid and who isn't able to pay the debt himself, then surely we can see within that a shadow of the gospel. Who do you cry out to when you realize that you have an unpayable debt? Do you realize that you have one? The Messianic prophecies, they weren't fulfilled in Moses or Elisha, but they would be fulfilled in Jesus. In Mark 8, 37, Jesus says, he makes it clear, what can a man give in return for his soul? He makes it so clear that there is no human being, that there is no person on earth who is able to gain enough stuff to be able to buy back their own soul. Even if you're rich enough to build rockets into space to colonize Mars, you are not rich enough to build yourself a rocket that will get you out of hell. Our sin so condemns us that the price for it is death. And in Mark 10.45, Jesus makes explicit the fact that he came to give his life as a ransom as a payment for many. You see, the truth of the human condition is that being born in sin, each of us has turned our own way and our sin has racked up a debt with God that will cost us our lives and our very soul. But the glory and the good news of the gospel is that God hasn't simply left us with an unpayable debt He is also the one who makes restitution for those who come to Him. God makes restitution for every single person who recognizes that they are living with a debt of sin that they cannot pay and that the only way that it may be paid is either by receiving their judgment from God or by turning from their sin and believing in Christ and trusting in Him. It is when we do that that Christ makes restitution for our sin debt and we are welcomed into His people, into His 
family. Have you done that yet? If not, then I would love to talk to you about it. And if you have, do you trust that when you do, and every time you do, God hears and He responds? Like the disciple who cried out to Elisha for help, when we cry out to God for help in our sin, for Him to forgive us and to mold us and to sanctify us and to continue to shape us, He responds. He faithfully responds. Just as surely as God can make iron float, He responds in forgiveness and in love to those who turn to Him. And so it's through your individual response to Jesus that you enter into the people of God. It's through you receiving His restitution that you join with His family. That's what I love about this passage and about what it portrays about the gospel. The good news of Jesus is both personal and plural. It is both individual and interdependent. God invites you to be part of His people under His rule in His place. And you know, one day, praise God, when the end of this age comes and the age of eternity begins, He will dwell completely with His people. No longer will we groan under the weight of our sin. No longer will we keep striving for our sanctification. But God will finish that work in us. And in perfect holiness, He will dwell among us. As Revelation 21.3 reminds us of what is to come. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. You see, the Lord being with His people and dwelling among them was always the goal. The Israelites got a glimpse of that. We see that in gracious measures in our lives and in our church today. And one day, all who have received God's restitution will enjoy it together with Him for eternity. On that day, we will know in a way that no human other than Jesus has ever known in history what it means that the Lord is with you. How will you and how will you 
be the people that God dwells amongst in anticipation of that day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for such, uh, for, for, for revealing your truth to us so that we may know you and so that we may know all that you have done all that you continue to do and all that you will do. Father, we thank you that you are not deaf to our cries, that you hear us when we call, that you are faithful and trustworthy. We can depend on the fact that you will respond. Father, may we be your people here in this place at this time under your rule. And God, may that continue to grow in increasing measures in our lives, in the life of this local church. We praise you, God for your salvation and for your work. In Jesus' name, amen.